The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB, Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the 15th day of May, 2022, in case you just woke up. Uh, our engineer, Brian Graves, he's right across the way with us, as always, captaining the ship. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you could be with us. We have a nice show lined up for you first. We welcome in the backup catcher of the 1986 champion New York Mets. If you remember, he filled in quite admirably when uh, Gary Carter went down. Ed Hearn will be with us. And in the second half, we'll welcome in author Howard Megdahl. We'll just be discussing his new book, The Baseball Talmud, of great interest to baseball fans, our Jewish friends and fans. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight on GBB. As always, great show, great people. And some great sports talk and memories up ahead tonight. As always, before I begin, I just want to remind you, we are on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. And we are out on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter. I would really appreciate it. At B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry. Because all of the shows are out on our website. Uh, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, backup catcher Ed Hearn, he played in 49 games for the New York Mets in 1986. Uh, unfortunately, he'd never play in that many games again in his three-season career in the bigs. Nevertheless, he was a presence on a New York Mets team that, of course, won it all in 1986. In 10 of his appearances, he had multiple hit games, and the Mets won 34 of his 49 games, and he won, he wore number 49, incidentally. Before the next season, he was gone. He was traded for David Cohn to the Kansas City Royals, but in actuality, baseball for Ed was really just a prelude, and we'll tell you more about that. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Ed Hearn. Ed, good evening. Hey, Bill. Ed, you brought me some new information, man. I didn't realize you had such a great Winning record when I was back there. Uh, yeah, games. yeah, you, that's pretty outstanding. Pretty nice, pretty nice, Ed. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> now, now, Ed, you grew up down in Florida. When you were a kid, who were your heroes and teams that that you rooted for? One man, one team. Johnny Bench of the Cincinnati Reds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And why the big red machine for a kid in Florida? Well, I was a catcher. I loved the position. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely believe that I admired one of the absolute best in all the history of the game. Yeah, and, probably uh, the. I even, I even imitated him. I had the long sideburns and in <laughs> high school, and I had had the batting stance. The bat was held low. Um, it, it, it transitioned as I get into the professional ball, but Johnny Bench was my man, and I looked up to everything he did. And that's a great one to look up to, Ed. That's for sure. Now, the uh, the Philly. Scout that signed you, I believe, was Andy Semenik, and uh, he was a Philly himself. Now, you you uh, were drafted by the Phillies in the fourth round. Uh, you also had an opportunity to go to the point, to West Point, didn't you? I sure did. And, and, wow. You know, I, caught, I caught quite a bit of flack back home from some of the folks in, in the military. That, How can you turn that down? Son? Yeah. And then I, I had uh, two or three opportunities with uh, some of the Ivy League schools as well. And then, you know, that's the educators. And they're going, what, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's the, I didn't know that, Ed. That, that's a great fact. Now, in, while you were in the Florida, Florida Instructional League, you played winter ball in Columbia. Now, you said that was absolutely one of the most horrifying experiences in your, in your life. Tell us a little bit about playing winter ball down in Columbia. Well, it was during a time, and I don't have any idea if it's still the same, but there were machine guns on every corner. Oh, man. And there was, there was drug 
threats, drugs everywhere. And, you know, we weren't in Bogota, Colombia, but, you know, just, just looking out the window, seeing, seeing these fellows with machine guns and, you know, who can you trust? They took our passports upon arrival, so we were stuck. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and just, I tell you what, I, the best thing I can remember, and it's not the best, but when we lifted off there, I was thinking about the men and women of our country that go off into these other countries, leave their families to serve us and take care of us. And I'll tell you, just those few months down there uh, with, with really no freedom, I, I just was so, that gave me such a great perspective mm-hmm. on what our service people do on behalf of us. A great sense of appreciation, Ed. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Now, when you were with Tidewater, I, I, I like to talk to guys who, who are into uh, to pranks and stuff like that. And, and, <laughs> and, you got right now, buddy. <laughs> yeah. now, now you had particular fun. They said with our friend Kevin Mitchell and uh, John oh. Cumberland, who just passed recently. The great oh, yeah. uh, John Cumberland. Give us uh, a little insight into what was happening uh, in Tidewater in those days. <laughs> All right, I'll give you two quick stories. Go Kevin ahead. Mitchell, I loved Kevin Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if there's anybody I was going to be in, in a, in a, in the, in the, in the trenches with and say in a war or something, that Kevin Mitchell would be my number one draft pick. <laughs> and Kevin didn't get along with everybody, but anyway, you know, the brothers, they don't like spiders and snakes, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, me, Kevin Schraldi, and I believe it was John Gibbons went off on a, off day, fishing off there, off the, the um, Norfolk area, and we caught some tuna. And as we're coming in, the captain said, you know, you want to play these up for you? I said, no, nah, no, no, no. But I, and I spoke up, hey, listen, would you just slice out a, one of those, a pair of eyes for me? <laughs> and, you know, I got this crazy look like, oh, okay, this is, are you not eating them, are you? No, sir, don't worry about it. Just put them in a baggie for me. And he thought, I'm sure he thought it was nuts. But, I took them back home, put them in the refrigerator, and took them to the park the next day with some thread, sewing thread, some tiny, tiny hooks. And I got there early, went over to Mitch's locker, and you got the bar you hang the clothes on, the uniform and all, and I took those two eyes out of that bag, you know, flesh just hanging off, you know, hanging off those puppies. Big eyes, you know, two, yeah. two or three inches wide. <laughs> and I hung them facing out on that bar where he hanged his clothes, and we just waited. Yeah. There you come, Mitch. He come in with that stride. You know, really walking that stride, baby. Come in there and look at his locker. And he just backpedaled all the way across the floor, locker room, <laughs> into himself, into the locker on the other side. <laughs> and about the time he hit there, he's hollered, huh? Damn it! What the heck are these things? Yeah. Oh, my God, just spooked that thing. Later on, during batting practice, when we got on the field, he's like, Eddie, you know, Eddie, when I walked into the clubhouse, I just had this feeling like somebody was looking at me. Something was looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Nice then I take it to a Sunday afternoon. John Cumberland. We're having chapel right out behind home plate, behind the fence here. We're looking done. Here's Cumbie all dressed in uniform. And uh, he's passed out, head back, off, off the side. And so me and Wes Gardner, one of my sidekicks, after, right after chapel, there was a um, big, uh, like a fire hose there where they bring them out of the field for the game. Yeah. We pulled that sucker out about 20 feet in front of Cumbie. We opened that valve wide open and just stuck him right in the chest. <laughs> he woke up in a hurry, but he couldn't move. He was flailing his arms and legs, and he was pinned to that sucker <laughs> to, the, to the dugout. It was just absolutely hilarious, and we let him off after about 20 seconds, but, yeah. you know, he, again, he knew who did it, because, you know, that's just what we did. <laughs> great, great stories, Ed. We're talking to Ed Hearn tonight on the program. Now, you shared an apartment with Calvin Chiraldi and the great Billy Bean. Now, he called you Ward for Ward Cleaver of Leave It to Beaver. We're big Leave It to Beaver fans here. We've had Jerry Mathers on the show a couple of times. Why did he call you Ward? Well, it wasn't just him. See, the year before in Jackson, we stayed in a, in a, a Mets minor leaguer's home. Yeah. He rented to us. There was four of us, Dwayne Vaughn, Calvin Sraldi, Billy Bean, and myself. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, early on in the season there, I would, I was kind of, I just like to cook. So I would cook for one whole day. Yeah. And I would freeze meals. And then, you know, we had, we had meals for the whole week home, of the homestand. Well, you know, we'd eat and everything, and these guys would leave the dishes just stacked up, stacked up. And then, I, you know, finally I said, you guys, I ain't cooking no more. You guys got to pitch in here. And throwing the fact that I wasn't much of a, I wasn't an out. You know, everybody in New York knows that I was the milk guy on the 8016, uh-huh. me and Mookie and maybe Kid Carter and Ray Ray. But um, I didn't go out and party, so these guys would be like, uh, oh, Ward, what time do we have to be home? <laughs> Ward, Ward, we'll get the dishes one of these days, Ward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good okay. one. Oh, man. The things that happened yeah. in the, in in the minors. That's now. I, I was looking up some stuff on your career, Ed. Now, do you remember your first big league homer? Yes, absolutely, Bill. That was that was one of the probably my second or third biggest best time in the big leagues. Um, it was Father's Day, and my folks had flown in from Florida, and uh, you hit your first home run on Father's Day. I mean, your first home run special, but with mom, dad, and Stan there. Oh boy! And, uh, yeah. Really special was that the ground crew guys retrieved the ball from from out in the outfield uh, from the fan. They traded it in the batter, couple couple balls or something. Or David Cohn for my home run ball. I don't know which one that. Was. I mean, no, I'm not mixing up stories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but they brought that ball to me after the game. They gave it to me and. uh I got to tell you, I was able to give that to my dad after the game, signed to him just with all the appreciation and love that I could. Oh, man. And that was just such a special day. What a day. Yeah, that's for sure. To to hand your dad your first home run ball. Oh, boy. You bet. Tremendous. Now, as, as you said, Ed, the the 86 Mets – Known for for uh, dropping one back every once in a while, you you uh, didn't participate in that. Now, one day you found yourself out on the, the Long Island Sound up here, fishing, and you ran out of gas. <laughs> oh my goodness, Bill! Uh, yeah, well, uh, now I can't tell you that I didn't participate at all. Oh, all right, okay, okay. my brothers, but you know, I, I was, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not. You know, Mr. Silk White, but yeah, these guys were over the top, but yeah, the, yeah, I, I had a, a dentist down along out where I stayed in Port Washington and I had met him through a Florida fishing magazine editor and, uh, he went out a couple of times, took me out and he said, man, I can't go out fishing like as much as you can. So he said, here's the keys, you know, what the oar and all that stuff is. And he said, just thank you. So I went out after a ball game. Uh, I, I would go out at night a lot on the Long Island Sound, blue yeah. fishing, striper fishing, and uh, one day I just I couldn't get any bait, so I just took a cruise and yeah. um, ended up at about right off the end of the runway, off LaGuardia, and uh, all of a sudden, was... <laughs> oh no, oh no, it's yeah. right. So. I had, he had a CB, one of the old CBs, probably on your program here. Nobody remembers what that is. Yeah, right. But, uh, <laughs> I, I had my phone to, you know, just text somebody. But So I started getting on CB, calling out to people, saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm stuck out here off, you know, in the sound off of the Gordy Runway, out of gas. Yeah, and then people just ignored me. <laughs> well, I said, hey, hi, this is Ed Hunt. Get to the Mets. Uh, I need some help out here on line, so I'm not running out of gas in my fishing boat. Oh, man, the chatter broke in and ended up with some kids out of Connecticut. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is it. All right. Yeah. Listen, man, uh, how can I prove to you that I am who I say I am? And they said, well, you tell us something about tonight's game that, that nobody else would know. And I don't remember what I did, but I whipped it out, and I said, okay, you understand now? They said, wow. How can we help you, turn? Yeah. What can we do? <laughs> they put you through the ringer, though, right? They, they oh, asking you all yeah, kinds man. of they questions. Were, yeah. They, oh, yeah. They were patting you down, man, from, from the CD yeah. board. And, uh, so uh, I said, but, uh, let's just call the uh, call the Coast Guard over here somewhere in Long Island and see if they can come out and, and bring me a, a, a pint of, or a gallon of water and a, and a pint of what the Mets drink, the Mets sellers. Right, Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I said, you, you guys come to the game on me. So we arranged that, and I brought him into the game one day. And so 
That's the story, and I, um, I'm sticking by it. <laughs> good. Oh, that, that's a good one. Ed Hearn with us tonight. Now, I want to talk to you, Ed, about one of the moments I remember uh, m- most vividly in uh, the 1986 season, and I, I got into a quote-unquote discussion about this particular evening with some fans at Riverfront Stadium in uh, Cincinnati. Now, that was, that was the ball game. Eric Davis, single, steals second. He tries to steal third. He slides hard into a guy that you don't want to slide real hard into. That's Ray Knight. He pops up, and Ray pops him <laughs> right right in the face. What a night that was. Now, you go in and catch for, for Gary Carter. That was the night that, that Davey had flip-flopped uh, Jesse and, and Roger in the outfield in the pitcher's mound. What, what a game that was. That was outstanding. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there's a, game, a lot of games like the playoffs in Houston, game six and stuff like that. But that game for a regular season game was outstanding. And what you're talking about is we were down to no regulars in the field. Right. And I, so I went to catch Gary went to third and they, they brought in Jesse and, and, uh, Roger, uh, vice versa from the outfield. So, um, one of those guys in right field and I'll tell you, um, the thing I remember most about that, and of course after the fight, <clears throat> was the play of Gary Carter at third base that day. Yeah. He was sad to turn the double play, charging the ball, making a great play. It was fantastic. And, you know, I, I think that, that night, it, you know, the fight, uh, how Gary came in and, and, you know, we put pictures in the outfit. I think that was a real, uh, just a perfect example of what the 86 Mets were about on the field. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Different story yeah. off the field, right, Bill? Exactly. Oh, yeah. We know that. Ed. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, those are well chronicled. But, but this game, folks, Google it if you can. It took place in Cincinnati. Uh, Hojo ended up winning the game with a three-run homer. But, and I think the, uh, the whole situation was precipitated by, uh, a, a great right fielder, Dave, uh, Parker, the Cobra, dropping a fly ball, and uh, that didn't happen too often, and and that's that's what opened the floodgates. But what what an evening that was! Now, yeah, it really was. I want to talk to you, Ed, about some of the health problems you had in in your career. I mean, we've uh, talked about the book Life's Curves, Conquering Life's Curves, Baseball Battles and Beyond. It's hard to believe that book is twenty years old already. Let's let's get the folks up to date on what's been happening with Ed Hearn. Well, it, it's been quite the journey. Yeah, um, you know, it ended up. Um, it just baseball, like you said in the opening. What did you call it? The stepping stone. It was a prelude uh, to what was going to happen. It, yes. Yeah, ba- baseball was was a prelude to what was really, I think, but without a doubt, in my mind, anyway. Uh, I say this humbly, but the most significant part of my life. So I was traded to the Royals for David Cohn. We all know that. It's worth trading Royals history. Yeah, okay. You can't control what you can't control. Right. Had a shoulder injury, battled to come back. Went to the real world, and uh, a year and a half later, I was on dialysis and had the first of what has now been three kidney transplants. Oh, man. And currently, that transplant is failing. So I'm... Um, I'm struggling. I, I battled some, uh, some significant anemia. And it's just flat hard to get around right now, and uh, I'm hoping to get a fourth kidney. But to what I'm saying is, I lost that. For, I had the first transplant less than a year later, year and a half after I was done playing the game, and went a lot of side effects to the, all the pills, 40, 30 to 40 pills a day, and I was diagnosed with a couple other pretty serious health issues. And about a year and a half later, this, one of the side effects took me to the basement. Uh, my home in here in the suburb of Kansas City, and, and I was ready to quit. But um, I unloaded the 337 Magnum and put it down on my desk. Oh, man. And I said, this is not what Ed Hearn was about. And uh, I came from the Mets. I came from a great family. And I knew I was not supposed to quit. And uh, six months later, a man told me, you know, Dad, you got a great story from an old jockey telling me, well, pull for will pay people like you to go out and share your story. Mm-hmm. You know, we need people like you out there, and, and, and they pay you. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, that, okay. And 
Say long story short, I've had the opportunity as I've battled these health issues, and there's been a big battle for 30 years. But the greatest thing in my life has been the opportunity to, you mentioned the book, I wrote that in 95. That was one year after I began speaking, and I traveled all over the country. And I tell you, without a doubt, I the greatest medicine that I could ever take, forget take all the pills I take, it's been the opportunity to go out there and use my story and it's not really the World Series. It's not really the big league stuff. You know, a, a guy told me about 15 years ago, he came up to me after I was speaking, he said, Mr. Hearns, you have been from the penthouse to the outhouse and back. Mm-hmm. And I looked down the house and said, wow, man, that sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's the back that I'm most proud of. Right. Because I know deep in my heart, and I humbly say that I had truly i know that this wasn't my plan i believe god had planned for me was greater than baseball and i know i had touched and impacted a lot of lives and i honestly god i say it so humbly but that is the juice of life for me i i speak a lot about you know in corporate america i tell them you think thinking outside the box is the way to go <clears throat> that's nothing i'm going to give you the key to everything in life you want money, you want a beautiful wife who's a nurse like me. Mm-hmm. What do you need in life? you got to think outside yourself. And that's what happened to me. I got a perspective by going to visit children in the hospital here in Kansas City. And that was the beginning of my perspective. And from that began to flow this opportunity to grow as a human being in ways I never would have grown. I tell people it's not at the penthouse of your life where you grow. It's in the outhouse. Right. We all know it's down your shit. I'm sorry to tell you. Manure, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, weeds, weeds can grow there, but, man, that's where the real growth is. But we got to think outside ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that back part of my life that that fellow mentioned, uh, Bill, that's what it's all about for me. And I'm struggling now. I haven't been able to get out there for a couple of years, and but I still try to reach. I'll reach out to somebody. I did this evening, about an hour before you called here. I saw a lady on Facebook that had just befriended me, and a little green light was on. And I hit the video call, and this here's this older woman. Out on Long Island, no doubt. And uh, I think Baldwin. Okay. And she came on and said, I can't believe this is you? Oh, yes, ma'am. What can I do for you? She said, Oh, I was reading your story, and my daughter had the same kidney thing you have. And we spent a half hour. Wow. And I hung up the phone, and you know what? She thinks that that was great that I called her. But you know what, Bill? I'm the one who got the most out of that call. And so, you know, right now here in the next couple of months, I'm hoping to get a, a living kidney donor. who will step up the plate and team with me so I can get back out. Mm-hmm making a difference and uh you know it's not easy no it's not ed but nothing nothing good is easy right bill that's true that's true ed hearn giving us his inspirational story tonight and uh what a story that is and i want to ask you ed are you coming to town in august i can't tell you bill i I haven't gotten an invitation uh but uh and i really don't expect one i mean uh, I'm, the, I'm the only catcher, you know. I'm the, anyway, but you know what? I would love to be able to be there, but I don't even know if my health is going to allow it. Probably around that time is when I hope to be um, recovering from a transplant so yeah. I can get back in the game. Right. So, you know, I, maybe I won't be there in August, but I'm certainly back there as soon as I can. I love, be, I love being in New York for a short period of time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you know me, I have trouble. You know, I don't want to get stuck out there on the end of the board of your runway and things no, like that. No, yeah, and have so. people grilling you about your jersey size and, uh, you know, who's coaching third base. And <laughs> oh, God. But, uh, you know, hey, uh, uh, I, I get back whenever I'm getting invited to, and uh, usually I stay an extra two or three days and go out and visit folks that, you know, are, like I said, less off, less well off than I am. I mean, from a health perspective, that, um, I have a great friend, David Lou, who takes me around to, to visit certain people that are struggling in life. And, 
I just, man, anytime I get back there, I'm ready to go, but I don't know if August is in the cards right now. Yeah, I hear you, Ed. Well, we thank you for spending time with us here in New York, Ed, and, and for uh, reliving some of the days of the great 86 Mets and, and uh, the guys involved there and uh, the inspirational stories that you have to tell. And uh, we appreciate the heck out of you coming uh, and spending some time with us up here in New York. Uh, I appreciate you having me on, Bill. Hey, you know, if you would share with, with your great audience, you know, uh, uh, a group called the National Kidney Registry. Okay. Uh, they can learn all they're doing. So many wonderful new techniques in living donor transplant, uh, and I'm registered with that group to get a new kidney. Wonderful um, opportunity to resource and learn about what's happening in today's world of transplantation. You heard it from Ed, folks. Check that out and uh, learn more about uh, what folks with the same situation as Ed have to uh, do in their daily lives uh, just to keep their heads above water. And again, Ed, we wish you the best of health, the best of life, the best of luck. We're going to keep you in our prayers, and uh, we'll talk to you a little bit down the road. We'll stick with you, Ed. Sounds good, brother. I appreciate it. I know you will, and I know the folks in New York will because uh, at least the Mets fans anyway, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> we had a tough one today. We took a little, uh, took a, a gut punch today. Lost the first series of the year. Uh, got beat by the Seattle Mariners today, but uh, tomorrow's another day. <laughs> yeah, the fans are there. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. There, they'll be there for the Mets. They'll be there backing me up, and, and I appreciate any support you can you can be in, in reaching out to those folks. That's one thing, Ed. The Met fans never forget you. Once you're in their heart, you're there to stay. Absolutely, man. And that's why I love coming back to the city and to the island. Outstanding. Well, thanks again, Ed, and uh, we will talk to you down the road. No problem, buddy. Keep swinging, Bill. You too, Ed. Thanks. That's Ed Hearn, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will speak with author Howard Megdahl about his book, the baseball Talmud. Stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Well, I was out at City Field last night for the Mets-Mariners game. Game started late uh, due to a rain delay. It was a foggy, murky kind of night. The Mets pulled one out. Uh, I have to tell you, though, I have never been a proponent of interleague play. Why, why should the Mets play the Seattle Mariners? There's no buzz. There's no rivalry there. So the Mets, instead of only visiting Wrigley Field or, or uh, Chavez Ravine just once a year, they could go out there uh, another time. I, I just don't get it. But that's uh, just another view by this baseball purist here. And uh, the game today, just a gut punch. Uh, almost came back to win it, but uh, not quite. So tomorrow's another day. The cards come in, and uh, better days ahead. That's it. Well, I'd like to introduce my next guest. He is a journalist and ed- Okay, we, we don't have our next guest yet, but I will continue to talk about uh, the game uh, last night. The 
the people drinking at that city feel i mean i am no teetotaler and i'm no angel but the these folks man they some power drinking going on at City Field, and uh, with the with the hour and a half, two hour rain delay that was involved, the, you got to have some serious coinage with you first of all to be able to, to buy all this stuff. They have a bar now uh, on every corner, like in, in the ballpark, and uh, the amount of alcohol that's consumed is amazing. And, and then I guess these people get in their car. And they uh, and they drive home. <laughs> it's, it's it's just unfathomable, but uh, a great game uh, that started off with two plays that were challenged by the Mets that were overturned in their favor. It uh, really really was an exciting ball game. Uh, Chris Bassett did a tremendous job on on the mound and uh, really gave it everything he could and. Uh, just just a, a tremendous effort on behalf of uh, Chris Bassett. And um, we're still waiting for our guest, folks, so we're just buying a little time here. Um, as I said, what an effort by Bassett. Uh, exciting moment to, uh, to win the ball game. Patrick Mazika, who was just brought up to the Mets from AAA Syracuse, got the start he had a little trouble trying to get on the same page as Bassett it looked like in the beginning of the game they they couldn't get their signals down and uh it was kind of obvious but they worked through their problems and uh just just a great game uh deservedly so for a guy like Patrick Mazika who uh spends most of his time as we said down at AAA Syracuse gets the call up because uh James McMahon Problem with the with his hand, some some uh, issue, some hand injury. So uh, they brought up Patrick, and uh, he got the start, and ended up winning the ball game with a home run down the right field line. As I said, a very murky, foggy night at City Field. A memorable evening, though, to say the least. And uh, the cards come in now. I think I'm going to be heading out there on Wednesday. If anybody is around, I'll give you my section number. You could stop by. Um, Scherzer goes Wednesday night, and I think that's when, uh, when we'll be, uh, heading out there. All right, folks. My next guest, a journalist and editor who has worked hard over his career to equalize coverage between both men's and women's sports while covering baseball, basketball, soccer, and other sports. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of the IX Newsletter. Now, that's a daily newsletter covering five different women's sports and The Next, which is a 24-7 women's basketball outlet. He is a freelancer for numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, 538, and Forbes. His books include... The Baseball Talmud, which we'll be speaking about this evening. Will Pond's Folly. You talked to him a little bit about that one, too. Taking the Field and The Cardinal's Way. His latest book, as we said, is titled The Baseball Talmud, the definitive position-by-position ranking of baseball's chosen players. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Howard Magdal. Howard, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Great to chat with you as well. Appreciate your time. Great to have you aboard, Howard. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit right off the bat about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, I, I know you're, you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan. We know that Gil Hodges, of course, will be going into Cooperstown this year. Now, there's a, a fact that, that I've heard that I'd like you to corroborate and speak a little bit about, that the season ticket holders in Brooklyn were 50% Jewish. That is correct, Bill, I, and I, I have sourced that in my book to an article in the 1954 edition of the Sporting News. Okay. I can tell you as somebody who was raised by a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, uh, who was Jewish as well, uh, that that was a significant part of the Brooklyn Dodger fan base uh, right up until uh, Walter O'Malley stole that team and ripped out the fabric of that and took them across the country in a way that is unforgivable. Exactly. Now, we talked about Gil going to the Hall of Fame. How do you feel about Walter O'Malley being in the Hall of Fame? Uh, it's a travesty. You know, yeah. the idea 
that Walter O'Malley was an important figure in baseball is indisputable. And he was obviously uh, a shadow over the National League for multiple decades. Uh, he took a team that was profitable in Brooklyn and had a very passionate fan base and took them 3,057 miles away. And the idea that that should somehow be rewarded with the Hall of Fame is unconscionable to me. Uh, it, is, it is a little bit better now that Gil Hodges, who should have been in decades ago, right? decades ago. I mean, let, let's not forget, Gil Hodges had the votes to get in in the Veterans Committee ballot in the early 1990s. But Roy Campanella, somebody who was uh, paralyzed as a result of an automobile accident and put a great, a Hall of Famer in his own right, had simply asked to vote by proxy, only to have him turned down by Ted Williams. Right. Gil Hodges finished one vote short. It, it's absolutely inexcusable. My father and I have worked hard on this for a long time. We have a brick at City Field that reads Gil Hodges for Hall of Fame, the Megdal family. And let me tell you, we're going to go in August. I'm speaking at the Hall of Fame on August 24th about my book, and we're going to go see his plaque where it finally belongs in Cooperstown. Well, maybe we'll see you up there, Howard, because we go every summer, and we're, we're especially looking forward to this year because of Gil going in, and I will definitely stop by it and listen to you speak up there at the, at the hall. Oh, I I, I'm looking forward to it. Now, uh, Norm Sherry. Mentioned in your book as, as uh, one of the Jewish ball players, let's talk a little bit about Norm Sherry and, and his brother Larry, too, for that matter. It's, I love that you put it this way, that Norm and his brother Larry, because it's so much the case mm -hmm. that Larry gets mentioned first. And, of course, that's understandable, Larry being the MVP of the 1959 World Series and right. a, a true October hero. But what Norm Sherry did across baseball, across the decades, cannot be uh, overstated. You know, he took a young pitcher who was struggling with wildness named Sandy Koufax mm -hmm. and turned him into an icon. And so it's very easy to say, you know, he would. He would downplay it, Sherry. He would say, you know, well, everybody knew to tell Koufax you needed to control things, you needed to take a little bit off your fastball. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing as a coach to be able to get through and teach that. And that he was able to do that with Koufax and so many others made him a revered figure in baseball, ultimately a manager, and significant enough that several decades later, a young catcher in the Expos organization named Gary Carter was put under Norm Sherry's care, essentially, mm -hmm. to try and learn how to become what he was, ultimately, which was a Hall of Fame two-way catcher. So for Norm Sherry, who was not what you would call a great hitter uh, by any stretch, although he put up some very solid numbers in the high minors and limited plate appearances in the major leagues, Norm Sherry is a very significant figure uh, before you even get into the fact that he was one of the very first New York Mets. Mm -hmm. True. Very true. You're right, Howard. Howard Megdal with us tonight talking about the great new book, The Baseball Talmud, and uh, the the big names, of course, are in this book, which which is a compilation of uh, the greatest Jewish ball players in history. And of course, we have Sandy Koufax, and as you mentioned, uh, worked worked with Norm Sherry to uh, really almost become what he was. And uh, Sandy, who went on to pitch to uh, a great batter by the name of Mister Ed, and uh, I don't know if you remember that, Howard. I, I, I do. I think if we are being fully truthful, as much as we love Sandy Koufax, it's worth noting that Mr. Ed Homer. Yes, he, Sandy he took Sandy deep, and uh, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, Norm Sherry was the backup to Johnny Roseboro, who was hanging off the top of the cage. And uh, <laughs> looking on was Wilbur, uh, Mr. DeRocher, and Moose Scourin and Willie Davis, uh, people may not remember, but uh, that's for another show, another time. Now, of course, you mentioned, Howard, the great, the great Hank Greenberg, who many people do not realize probably put up with more abuse and, and more prejudice than Jackie Robinson did as, as a Jewish ball player. 
you know, when you think about Greenberg, it's worth thinking about the context of his time. So Hank Greenberg breaks in in the early 1930s. Uh, 1932 is his first season in the big leagues. Well, that is a year before Adolf Hitler took power in Germany. And so it's easy to say, sure, but that was over there. Well, we need to remember this was Detroit. This was a city that was built in many ways by one of the worst anti-Semites of the 20th century, Henry Ford, right. uh, yeah. who distributed a book called The International Jew, uh, full of lies and vile, slanderous things about the Jewish people. He's doing it in a city that is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Royal Oak, Michigan, which is where Father Charles Coughlin was uh, having his broadcast, his radio show, full of anti-Semitic statements every single week, the Tucker Carlson of his time. And so for Greenberg to become beloved in Detroit, and do it, by the way, in part by honoring his religion, by refusing to play on Yom Kippur in the 1934 pennant race against the hated New York Yankees in Detroit, uh, I think it certainly helped on uh, Rosh Hashanah he elected to play and hit two home runs to beat New York. But the net result of that entire thing did two things. It brought Greenberg and the Detroit Tiger fans closer to each other, and it also brought Greenberg closer to Judaism. Greenberg was more of a secular Jew than a religious Jew, but he honored Yom Kippur because he understood what he meant to his people. And you can fast forward 31 years, and Sandy Koufax, another secular Jew, made a similar decision for very similar reasons not to pitch in Game 1 of the 65 World Series. So again, it's the fans having an impact on the player as much as the players having an impact on the fans. I just I love the duality of that. Another big name, Howard, that you mentioned that people I, I was unaware that that he was Jewish was Lou Boudreau. Mm hmm. Really interesting that you know Boudreau, and again, it's worth noting that in my book, I I decided to use as expansive a definition of Judaism as possible. If he was somebody who would be considered Jewish by a, a segment of the Jewish people, I wanted to include them. Uh, to me, excluding people and trying to determine who is and isn't Jewish is above my pay grade at a certain level, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Boudreau, who had a Jewish mother, was one of the great players, of course, uh, not really talked about today. His 1948 season with Cleveland, uh, just when you go back and think about it, to hit 355, to have 18 home runs, 98 walks, and strike out nine times all season is incredible yeah. before you get to the defensive shortstop, before you get to the fact that the guy was the manager of the team as well. It's Buck Showalter's doing a terrific job with the Mets, but I don't think anybody would want to see him out at shortstop. Again. Right. So that combination is just remarkable to me. What, what a great fact brought out in the baseball Talmud by Howard Magdal. Now, I, I wanted to relate this story to you, Howard, because I think you might find it a little bit uh, interesting. Uh, I, I've been an autograph collector throughout my, my uh, later years, and there's a gentleman I know, a fellow collector, who had what, what he called his Jewish bat. Now, he would bring this to signings and, and collect Jewish ballplayer signatures on it. Now, there's one guy in particular, I won't mention his name, but uh, he is mentioned in your book, of course, he refused to sign the Jewish bet. Now, <laughs> and my friend, he, he, he was incredulous. Like, he's, how can he not sign this? It's a, you know, <laughs> but I, I just found it interesting that, uh, he, he said he didn't want to be involved in it. Now, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what he thought you know, it, what he thought it was, you know? But I think it's really interesting. And, and there is a wide variety of, comfort levels with being identified as a Jewish baseball player. And uh -huh. there are players who revel in it, and there are players who are um, indifferent to it, and there are players who, and I ran into this in the course of doing my book, who said, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to be interviewed for your book, but I just want to talk from a baseball perspective. I don't want to talk about the Judaism aspect of it. And so yeah. it, it is interesting. It is also during a period of time... Uh, over the past, let's say, 20 or 30 years, where I think it's been easier for uh, Jews of all stripes to say, 
you know, to be speaking out on behalf of the Jewish people was less important because anti-Semitism uh, is a battle that was fought in the past, but is not so much the present. But as we well know from the stats that the Anti-Defamation League just released a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. anti-Semitic hate crimes are on the rise, and mm-hmm. making sure that the Jewish people speak out on behalf of one another is something as important as anything I can imagine. And so while this book is a fun way of looking at baseball history through a Jewish lens, it is something I was very conscious of in writing the book and something I think about every day. Gotcha. Okay. Now, just give us quickly, uh, uh, how many ball players are in the book, Howard? We have 180. Uh, okay. We're up to 181, thanks to Kenny Rosenberg, uh, who was promoted to the big leagues since uh, the book went to press. Right. Uh, but what's fascinating, what's wonderful about it, is it just continues to keep on growing. Yeah, that's amazing, and you folks will enjoy reading about all these guys. And as I said, there's players that, that you probably didn't even realize were Jewish. Uh, who, who's your favorite? Do you have any favorites, Howard? Oh, that's such a hard question. I, I've always been partial to Ian Kinsler. Uh, early on in my sports writing career, I wrote about him when he came to New York, did a feature story, uh, met his father, who was a Bronx boy, made good. Uh, and Kinsler was somebody who I really think outperformed his expectations. He was someone who was thought of as, you know, maybe he'd be a utility infielder. Uh, and he became, in fact, such an elite player over uh, a decade-plus career that the Texas Rangers just inducted him into their Hall of Fame this past week. So Kinsler somebody I have a lot of affection for. Sean Green was somebody... I got to know both when I covered him with the Mets late in his career, mm-hmm. and then I, I did a book signing, or a book event with him at the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival about his book, uh, which is also wonderful. And Sean Green's a very thoughtful person. And then it's very hard not to love Mo Berg, a guy who was a catcher, who Casey Stengel coined the phrase, good field, no hit, on behalf of him, and yet he went on to do things like he studied at the Sorbonne. He, be, he got a law degree, and he became a spy for the United States during right. World War II, working for the OSS. So, oh, they're, they're all my favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, just take for an exa- example, Howard, a guy like Mo Berg, uh, a, a legendary figure in baseball. If, if uh, you folks care to Google him, there, there, there's yeah. films out about Mo Berg, a fascinating character, and... Uh, he, he's one of the guys, of course, mentioned in the book. Now, are, are there any... The thing about Moberg... Go ahead, Howard. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Just the, the, the thing about Moberg that I think is so interesting is that he had all of these interests, all these talents, but it's generally talked about his baseball as sort of an afterthought. And Moberg was good enough to play at age 21, right out of college, right out of Columbia, with the Brooklyn Dodgers team that finished middle of the pack in the National League that year. And I do think it's worth wondering if Berg had concentrated exclusively on baseball, if in fact he had been a little bit less of what he acknowledged was his own limitations as a dilettante. He had just so many interests. Whether Moberg could have been not just a major league player, which to be a poor major league baseball player, you need to be very good at baseball, Mm -hmm. but could he have been something well beyond that. I have my suspicions, and we'll, of course, never know, but I think Mo Berg could have been even better uh, than he ultimately turned out to be on the field. Fascinating character, Howard. Yes, Howard Magdal tonight, the baseball Talmud. Did you have any players reach out to you when they found out they were included in, in this uh, anthology of uh, Jewish ball players? Anybody uh, reach out to you? It's been... Uh, essentially a two-way conversation about it, right? So the the players, uh, and certainly the active players, certainly knew about it. You know, Ron Bloomberg was somebody uh, who happened to work uh, with my publisher as well, uh, and, and his book, I, I love that. Right, the guy, our buddies out of Triumph, right? That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, mm-hmm. Triumph, just is so many great books. Uh, although I'm actually hard at work in another one uh, about women's basketball, through a Minnesota lens, uh, which would be published by Triumph in 2024. Ah, uh, but, okay. You know, generally there's been just this this happiness, this this kind of delight uh, about it. And even the players who didn't necessarily know 
how they felt about Judaism in their own lives, I think they've enjoyed the fact that they're able to see where they measure up, where they stack up uh, within Jewish baseball history. And that's something I love, just because Jewish baseball history is so rich in a way that goes beyond, you know, the, the old joke in Airplane, the leaflet of Jewish athletes. Well, you can go back to the earliest days of baseball history and find a man named Nick Birkenstock, who at age 40 uh, played for the Oakland Athletics. It means that born in 1839, the oldest professional baseball player on record is Jewish. And mm-hmm. it stretches all the way to a World Series we just experienced with four Jewish players, including, I mean, it had to be just one of the highlights of my life, was when Max Fried pitched the ball, Alex Bregman hit the ball, and it was caught by Jock Peterson. So it was just an entirely (laughs) Jewish play from start to finish. Right. Oh, yeah. People, Max Fried, there's a name for you right there, folks. Uh, All all these guys included in the book. By the way, Max Fried. An answer to a trivia question that unfortunately we need to ask for evermore, which is, who was the last pitcher to win the Silver Slugger Award in the National League due to the unfortunate abolishing of the no DH rule in the National League? There you go, folks. A great one right there. We can talk, folks, about... Uh players in this book for for another hour and still you'd have uh, many to uh, take away when you purchase this book i want to talk to you about uh, quickly uh howard about ryan braun and about his plight with with uh, performance enhancing drugs i found that very interesting you know the thing about braun is that he ought to be a pure jewish hero he has 352 career home runs which is a massive number it's more than Hank Greenberg hit. Greenberg, of course, missed four years due to the war. More than Sean Green hit. It's more than any other Jewish player has hit in history. More than Al Rosen. It's a remarkable feat. And it's nothing less than the completion of a career that when Braun got to the big leagues, we thought had the opportunity to redefine Jewish stardom in the 21st century. But when Ryan Braun was found to have taken performance-enhancing drugs, there was an appeals process, and during the course of the appeals process, Braun not only successfully won the appeal, but he then uh, cast aspersions on the person who had taken the sample and insinuated that perhaps he was an anti-Semite. Uh, and again, we go back to what we were talking about earlier. When there is so much real anti-Semitism in the world, when a Jew falsely accuses somebody of anti-Semitism, it is immensely problematic from a moral perspective. It it upset me greatly, and and many people I know as well. And so Braun is a complicated figure. And again, it is no surprise, right, that Jewish baseball history mirrors baseball history as a whole. And in much the same way that we're going to spend as baseball fans writ large trying to figure out where Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez fit within the larger confines of baseball's hierarchy. The same is true as we as Jewish fans need to evaluate Ryan Braun. Outstanding. Well, Howard Megdal, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday evening to spend some with us here. Again, the folks, the books is titled The Baseball Talmud, The Definitive Position-by-Position Ranking of Baseball's Chosen Players. It's on Amazon. It's from our friends in Chicago at Triumph Sports. Thanks so much again for stopping by, Howard. My pleasure to be back anytime. Wonderful. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Ed Hearn and Howard Magdal, my engineer Brian Graves, and of you and you folks for joining us. Thanks again. We'll see you on May 22nd with Hall of Famer Jim Cotton, ESPN's Bob Ryan. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.